may be seated. And turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter number 1. We're in our walking series. So far we have studied Noah and the word grace, Abraham and the word faith, Jacob and the word change or transformation, Joseph and the word surrender, Moses and the deliverance of his own life and the deliverance he brought to God's people. Joshua, this year we began with... And we studied victory. How do you actually live the victorious Christian life? And then the last two Sundays we have studied Ruth. As we come then to Samuel, we note that his life is a life of obedience. Not perfect obedience, but it's one that is pursuing obedience. Let's read the first 20 verses and we will only make it to introducing ourselves to Samuel in verse number 20 this morning, but we'll see for our reading this morning the beginnings of a life of obedience. The Bible says, beginning in verse number 1, Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And the time was, when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, portions, or the appropriate amounts and portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb and her adversary. Now, I noted in the early service, it's always a bad idea to have two wives at once. I have to state some obvious facts sometimes from the Word of God. And we find out why. Panina to Hannah was an adversary. We keep reading. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord hath shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah her husband to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon the seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaiden and remember me and not forget thine handmaiden, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. He noticed her mouth moving, in other words. Now, Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. 
Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, literally means begged of God saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Father, help us this morning as we come to not just this passage, but another one in chapter 3 that introduces us to this man, Samuel. Help us, Lord, as we come to his life to understand the man, his character and his conduct. May we understand, Lord, how we can learn from Him. His obedience and life of consecration can be our obedience, beginning in our consecration. Help us to see the truth of it. This morning specifically, Lord, help us as parents, those who may have grown children or those who have children who are growing in our homes, maybe even those homes that represent future children born here. May we understand the importance of raising children in a consecrated way to you. Bless all that is said and done in this place today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to Samuel this morning, we learn about obedience. His most famous statement in 1 Samuel chapter 15 involves a statement of obedience given to King Saul when he confronts him about his disobedience to God. He says to King Saul, to obey is what? Better than sacrifice. Do you believe that this morning? A lot of times in our life, in our present age, here's what we end up saying. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. That's a bit of a twisting of the words and basically twisting of the principle. I'm going to go ahead and do it, and I hope that my parents, or I hope that the authorities, or I hope that God is okay with it, and if not, I'll just ask for forgiveness then. No, to obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel was a great judge. That's why he's drawn for us in the way that we will look at him over the next four messages in his life. He was a great judge. He was a great priest. And he was a prophet of Almighty God. In other words, he fulfilled all three of the roles that Jesus himself will fulfill. Prophet, priest, and king before there was a kingly line in Israel. Samuel was the last judge of Israel. He was the one who was tasked by God to initiate the office of the earthly king. And by this I mean he was tasked by God to set the parameters on what the king would do. The king would not be a priest. It would be a separate office because the people desired it to be so. Samuel also performed the role of priest in leading worship to God. Samuel's life teaches us of obedience and the critical role that obedience plays as we walk or desire to walk with God. Obedience begins then with a longing for consecration. That's what we're looking at today. 
a longing for consecration. By longing, I simply mean a strong desire, a passion for this thing. Well, what does it mean to be consecrated? What does consecration actually mean? The word consecration means the separating of oneself. I put this in your notes from things that are unclean, especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with a holy God. The idea of Consecration, therefore, carries the idea of sanctification, holiness, and purity. We meet Samuel then this morning by meeting his mom. We met Hannah. As we read in our passage this morning, Hannah longed for God to give her a son. But even more than that, she longed then to give that son back to Almighty God. Verse 28 here in chapter 1, if you look there, says this, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he, that is Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. The idea of longing then has a very strong tie to consecration. We might say it this way very clearly today. You will never obey God if you don't first have a longing to be holy like He is holy. You'll never do it. You may have some surface change. You may be able to fool some people, but you'll never truly have a heart or a life desiring to obey God until you understand the longing in the consecration that is necessary. Many times I am asked, Pastor, how can I be sure my kids turn out right? (laughs) Well, thanks for asking. That's a tough question. I have three that are growing in my house right now. I'll let you know when we get to the finish line. Well, that's a cheap answer, and it's not a good Bible answer. The Bible gives us answers of how we can raise kids in a way that is in obedience to Him so that they consecrate their lives and seek to obey Him by their own choosing. The answer, in fact, is to build within them a desire, a longing for consecration to God. That's how we have obedience. It begins with some basic parenting principles this morning in our outline. There's some parenting principles that are necessary. What are they? Well, they're given to us in chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1 teaches us some basic principles of parenting that we all should know. Elkanah, Panina and Hannah are in the exact same pattern as Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Leah was bountiful with children, but Rachel longed for a child, and God gave her Joseph. Here we find that Elkanah, an Ephrathite, comes to worship God in Shiloh, and as he comes to worship God, his wife Leah seems to have a bevy of children. I mean, just a slew of them, sons and daughters. And Elkanah brings them to worship God as his responsibility as the father was to do. And as they come to worship, here is Hannah, year after year, child after child, time after time, looking for and waiting to have her own that she could bring before the Lord and teach to worship God like she and her husband desire. And yet, nothing. By the way, It is clear from the Word of God that Elkanah loves his wife. In fact, it's weird for me to say this, it's clear that he loves both wives. 
Certainly not God's design and certainly not what God has for us. God's desire was never for any of these Old Testament men to marry two wives at the same time. However, the marriages themselves do show us a picture here in our New Testament age. The first wife always represents Israel, while the second wife always represents the church. The church is an anomaly to those of the Old Testament. And so Samuel gives to us a picture of the product of the second wife, one that has purpose and one that has plan from Almighty God. It is an interesting study in the Bible. There are a lot of good fathers, and it's wonderful to study their attributes in the Bible. But Boy, there are some great moms. I mean, I know it's late February. We're still months away from Mother's Day, but we can still preach a good message on moms and motherhood. We can still tell ourselves what the principles of good parentage actually looks like. The idea from this story is that a biblically situated family or a biblically designed family is what is healthy. The idea of a biblically situated family is so critical to the proper adjustment and the upbringing of children. No matter what our culture says today, no matter what social influencers say, no matter what government authorities would tell us, no matter what Google's AI says about a nuclear family, it is still the best way to raise children in the modern day. How many saw that article this week or the news? Google Gemini, if you were to ask it in the day that it seemed to be up before they took it back down, You asked it, what is a nuclear family? It would literally spit back out to you, that is offensive to some people. We cannot render an answer. The Bible renders an answer. It tells us that it's a good thing. It tells us what God wants us to know about the family. There is no better way for a child to be whole than to be part of a whole family. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen. The principles, however, in this home are still good, whether there's two parents present or whether it's been a divorce and remarriage or whether there's been a process of a loss of a spouse in some way. The principles for parenting are still very valid from this passage of Scripture. Parents, we learn two principles for this consecration towards obedience in the life of Samuel before he was even born. The first thing, letter A, is pray for your kids. Pray for them. Verse number 27, Hannah says this as she's offering Samuel back to God. She says to Eli, for this child I prayed. Jessica had this portion of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 27 stenciled on the wall above Drew's bed when he was a newborn. I'll never forget it. It was right there over his, his little crib that he would sleep in and that we would come in and you would see it. And it was very important to her to have that over his bed. Before Drew came along, we lost a baby. When we moved to Kentucky and planted bluegrass, we were not sure that we could ever have kids. There was a process of God's intervention and good medicine that was ensured us that we could even have a child at all. And so we know what it means to pray earnestly for God to give a child. We prayed for Nate. 
we prayed for Luke. In each instance, we asked God that if you give us a child, may we do our part in raising that child in the way that he or she should be raised. Since they were born, we have not stopped praying for them. You say, well, what do you pray for when you pray for your kids? The first thing we pray for is their health. Now, some of you know Drew. Some of you don't know this about Drew. And I asked his permission this morning if I could share his part of the story. When we were praying before Drew was born, we didn't know about his health. But we know that when he was about three months old, we took him to UK hospital because his eyes would track. And we didn't know why they would track. Most babies' eyes don't do that. We went to UK, and after waiting three hours with a bunch of cooks and criminals and convicts in the uh, public sp- uh, space that is down there at UK, we were taken back into a room. A doctor came in, and in the process of three minutes, she looked at us and said, your son's going to be blind. Good luck, and walked out of the room. Well, your prayer life gets real, real at that point. Okay. Well, what does that mean? I mean, he's three months. He can't tell us what he can and can't see. We continued to pray and sought God's will, and we decided to go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Man, the people at Cincinnati Children's are fantastic doctors. They're wonderful. Brian and Shannon can probably attest to that with their grandson Cash being there. We know what it means to pray for people's health. Well, we went there, and and we met a Dr. North, and then after Dr. North, we had a Dr. West, and after Dr. West, we did not have any more directional doctors. We had Dr. Desumu. And through his 15 years nearly of life, Drew goes once a year, used to be twice a year, up with Jessica to Cincinnati Children's Hospital to have drops put in. I remember when he was a little boy, we'd have to hold him down and get that eye in there because there was nothing worse than than those drops going in his eyes because he was very sensitive to light. What we discovered was Drew was diagnosed with ocular albinism. The little fundus part of your eye and the back part of your eye for him is blonde while the rest of ours is pink. And what that means is his night vision is on all the time. And so for him, he has shaded glasses. And when he plays sports, he's supposed to wear his dark glasses when he goes outside, but he doesn't always do that. But the prayer life for our kid continued to change in the physical realm. We know what it means to pray for that. And it was about age seven or eight that he started asking Jessica and I questions when we would go up there. Dad, do you think I'll ever be able to drive a car? Well, we don't know. You can shoot a basketball. You can throw a football. You can do all of these other things. We don't know. As we continued along, by the way, just so for explanation, when someone has ocular albinism, it is a genetic passing. There's no cure for it. It's not like the doctor can go in and give him medicine and fix it. It's just genetically how it is. And within that, there is a punit square of two that he would have been completely blind, totally blind. There are two within the four quadrants of the punit square where he would have had nothing but a carrier, which, by the way, our other two sons have. They are carriers, but they do not have the manifestation. And then there's a quadrant where they are blind to some degree. And so we prayed, well, let's see how it goes. And it was only until he could begin verbalizing that the doctors started saying, you know, he has the best form of this. It really is a miracle. You all are blessed because there's lots of families. In fact, the Ocular Albinism Society of America, which we get information from and we can participate in if we want to, they would tell us that ours is the rarest of the rare cases. Less than 3% of anybody that's diagnosed with it is in his condition where he can function. Let me tell you something. Your prayer life for your kid's health changes when you get that news. So he's coming up on his 15th birthday this July. And you know what the doctors will be telling him this, this July? 
if he can do this or not. And so what are we praying as a family? That he can drive because daddy doesn't want to drive him everywhere. Right, son? He's back here running the computer this morning. I don't want to drive. The point is, he is a huge fan of Elon Musk. You know why? Because Elon's car will drive you around on its own. That would be fantastic for him. We know what it means to pray for our kids. And by the way, there's many of you as a pastor. I know your stories. I'm not at liberty to share your stories of the things that you've endured, the things that you've had to suffer through, the things that have come into your life. But a life of obedience to God, one of consecration, begins with parents praying for their kids. And we started, before they were even born, that they would be healthy. Whatever that may mean to us. We prayed for their spiritual condition. We pray that they would love the same God that we love and love that God in the way that we love that God. We pray for their friends. Before they were ever born, Jessica and I began praying, and she is much more earnest in praying daily for them than I do. I try and I pray for them every day, but she prays every day for these specific things, that their friends would be good, healthy, and wholesome for them. By the way, that means we're praying for your kids. By the way, teenagers, we're praying for many of you. Not because we want our kid to be a goody-goody two-shoes or hoity-toity our three boys, but we want them to love God like we love God, and their friends have a lot to do with that. Before they were ever born, Jessica also began praying for their spouse. You say, really? I mean, before they're even born, you pray? Yes, because who you marry affects how you live. And we were given three boys, and boys follow their eyes. And so we teach them, don't just marry a pretty girl. They have to be attractive to you, but don't you dare just marry a pretty girl. Drew and Nate so far are like, girls still. Our youngest, Luke, at age nine is already like, I got this girl and I have this girl. <laughs> Avery keeps making heart hands at him. I don't know what we're going to do, Stephanie. Oh, the heart hands. I'm like, oh, man. Wes told me the other day that he gave a stuffed animal to Olivia. I don't know what we're going to do with Luke, but we're going to pray real hard for Luke. <laughs> Looks a lot like his dad. <laughs> the most important thing we pray for our kids is that they would understand why we choose to believe what we believe. Hannah, in our story, prayed that God would give her a son. Then she prayed for his life in service back to God. So I asked them this morning, how often do you pray for your kids? Well, pastor, my kids are grown up already. <laughs> Even more you need to pray for them. They're no longer under your protection and provision, dads. They're no longer under your nurturing and help, moms. Even more you need to pray for them. How quickly we dismiss the importance of of prayer. As I noted, I pray for the boys, but Jessica, since the day they were born, has earnestly prayed each morning and each evening, and because we homeschool probably many times throughout the day for our boys. We pray for their souls, we pray for their safety, and yes, we pray for their, their future spouse. By the way, praying for your children will serve more as a reminder to you than to God of the importance of consistency in their life. You cannot pray that your kids would grow up to obey God while you're disobeying God. 
Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll let Johnny grow up to be a great saint of yours. I am going to go over here and be a sinner, however. By the way, moms and dads, your kids see that. They see your inconsistencies. You know what they do? They mark them down as just lies. You say, well, that's not fair. They don't understand my life. No, they understand you, though. You can't pray for your kids and then live a life that is wantonly sinful. It seems to be the way we are in America today. Praying for your kids is the foundation stone for successful obedience in their life and for them to then live a life consecrated wholly to God. But you can't just pray, hope, and cross your fingers. The second parenting principle that we find in the life of Hannah and in Elkanah is prepare them. You have to invest in them and prepare them. If you were to read verses 20 through 28, you would find that Hannah weans the child She converses with Elkanah and says, I'm not going to go up and offer him to the Lord until we are done training, weaning, and preparing him so that he can go into that ministry with Eli as I lend him to the Lord without being a detriment and instead being successful and encouraging to the work of the Lord. So it's incumbent upon the parents to make sure that Johnny and Susie, as they're growing up in their house, know all the things that they need to know to obey God as well. Parents, it is your responsibility to prepare your kids for life. Obedience does not happen accidentally. Your kids will not have a desire, a longing for consecration in themselves. They are naturally not born that way. It is your responsibility as parents to teach them. Here's what you must teach them. You must teach them when they must obey. In our house... You must obey the first time you're told. Well, man, that that sounds pretty harsh. Listen, if Johnny is running towards the street, in our case, if Luke is running towards the street, and he's not been told to listen to Dad the first time, he's going to run right out in the middle of that street, and the car is going to hit him. You say, well, that's never going to happen in my situation. Listen, every time your child is allowed to disobey and disobey and disobey and be told 14 times, I told you to do this. Your kid's just like the one running right out of the middle of the street and is going to get hit by the car. Children should be taught to obey the first time they are told something. They are taught when they must obey. They are also taught why they must obey. Well, why do I even have to listen to your God, Dad? Because God is the God of my life, Drew, Nate, Luke. Because Ron Fannin one day said, Kyle, he's the God of my life. This is what I want. This is where we're taking our family. This is the way that I'm training you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We understand the when, the why, but the other thing that we must teach our kids is how. In our house, it's a yes, sir, and a yes, ma'am. A no, sir, and a no, ma'am. And I know they get tired of it. They're in here listening to the preaching this morning as well. You can ask them if these things are true. They get tired of me sometimes from my office when mommy says to them, hey, go do this. Or, hey, would you want this? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Consistency. And, oh, we are far from perfect in it. Jessica is always nervous when I preach on the home because the kids are usually rotten leading up to it and rotten leading out of it. Because the devil likes to have a field day in the house of the preacher. Trust me, we're just like you. That's why we're flying out of town tomorrow night to go uh, to a preacher's conference. Good luck, Nanny and Papa. You got them all week. 
I'm kidding. We are leaving, but we're not doing it for that reason. In the story, in the context of it, Elkanah, the husband, ensured that his home had abundant provisions. It literally says he gave Hannah a worthy portion. He also provided protection. These were not in doubt in the life of little Samuel as he grew as a little boy. Elkanah left the nurturing and raising of Samuel to his mother. Elkanah ensured that Samuel knew God. That was important to him. He's the one that leads them in worship. He's the one that takes them to church, if you will. He's the one that takes them to where God's presence was. Elkanah ensured that Samuel knew God. He ensured that Samuel knew what worshiping God was and why it was important. But he left to Hannah the process of teaching Samuel about life, about God, and about obedience. God's design is for dads to go work and provide while the nurturing of obedience to God rightly falls to moms or mothers within the, within the home. In our home, I set the direction as to where we are going and who we will be. But it is Jessica that makes sure that message is clearly communicated to the boys. Thus, we can say in any good home, the father should be the law while the mother is grace. Yeah, well, that's what dad said, but let's see how we can do that. That's exactly what New Testament grace does. The law tells us we come short, but grace says this is how we can still do that. For kids to obey, you must do a couple things. I want you to write these three kind of as an aside to your notes. I promise I will pick up the pace as soon as I'm done with this point. For kids to obey, you must, number one, demonstrate that you, mom and dad... Love God. Your kids will never love what you do not love. Period. You cannot say you love God and barely darken the door of a church. Well, I find God on my own, Kyle. I don't need to find Him at church. Huh. The only institution that Jesus shed his blood for is the church. And you say you're better than that? Elkanah understood the importance of coming before God, the important role of the church. The second thing I would say is discuss what loving God means. What did Jesus say? If ye love me, keep my commandments. So as parents in the home, make sure you and your kids know what God wants from you. Oh, how terrified many parents would be if pastor this morning, and I'm not, don't raise your hand, little ones, and I mean teenagers as well. If I asked the kids, or if I went back into junior church and super church and said, of course, going into those, you have to be real energetic. I said, hey, kids, how you doing? Pastor Kyle here, how you doing? Right? I'd have to do it like that. I think Wes, right? That gets their attention. Good. Okay. How many of you have had, how many in here have had devotions in your family this week? Ooh. How many hands would go up? Well, I mean, my dad found his Bible on the way to church this morning. Good for dad. Way to go. Pastor, you're meddling right now. Wait till I get to the third point. You have to teach your kids what God expects of them. How do you do that without ever opening the Bible? Uh. Elkanah brought them to the worship in the manner that God required. 
He taught them that worshiping God was essential to their lives. You cannot tell your kids to do something that you're not wanting or willing to do. It begins with a demonstration of his love. It continues in a discussion of God's love. But the third is decide actionable steps that measure learned obedience. In other words, you as a family sit down and decide, this is what we can measure as a way forward of success. For us in our house, for example... If the kids, they get to play their video games on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. In the early service, by the way, I said they get the switch. And somebody came up after church and said they get spanked? That's a video game for the older generation in here. Uh, It's like Nintendo version of it. And then there's others. But they get an hour. Oh, really? Well, I mean, my kid, uh, uh, I think he gets like 35 hours a day. Uh, They get an hour. And trust me, I know they want more than that. And mean old prudish dad is like, no. But if they read a book, this was amazing. Yesterday, they went into their rooms after they played their hour and they opened up books and they read the books. I think Drew's reading one on like how to be a leader from John Maxwell and and Nate's reading, or I made him read one on the life of Joseph yesterday uh, from Chuck Swindoll. And and the point is that they're, they're, they're actually reading books to earn more screen time. What a horrible parent I am. Aren't you kids glad you don't grow up in my house? Now you know how to pray for your friends, the Fannin boys. I think we're doing it okay. And our way's not the only way. But I feel comfortable in what we've chosen. We must decide on actionable steps. In our house, there's a phrase that our boys know. Obedience brings blessings, Nate whispered. If you obey mom and dad, then blessings follow. By the way, that's exactly what it is with God. What are we trying to teach him in our home? What God expects from us. They must earn freedoms as they grow up. Not just given to them because everybody else is doing it. I'm going to really make a lot of teenagers mad. There might be one or two that just gets up and walks out. I hope you don't have to go to the restroom right now, teenagers. Mom, I want a phone! pin drop. In our house, they have to earn the right to have one by the time they turn 16. And then it's a dumb phone. I always tell my kids, smart people use dumb phones. We dumb people use smartphones. In other words, when they get in the car and they drive away and they're on their own, I need to make sure they make it from point A to point B. And if they have a problem along the way that they can call dad and come get them. The sheriff of Henderson County, Nevada, once met with Dave Tice at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas, where his church is. And the sheriff told the families, a secular institution told the families of the church that we do not recommend our police officers' kids have cell phones or smartphones until they turn 18. That is the secular world saying that. And I realize some of you are like, you have really left the reservation. Are you even sane? And some of the teenagers are like, man, what is he doing? I hope he shuts up soon. The reason he told them that is unless you're ready for your kids to see all sorts of pornography and filth and the evil underbelly of Satan himself. This was a sheriff saying this. Don't hand your kid a cell phone. Certainly not a smartphone. 
I asked TJ one time, who works for the FBI here in our church, and he said, oh, the FBI has the same policy. It's not a good idea for your kids to have cell phones unless you're ready for them to see all of the filth of the world. Look, if the secular institutions of the world get it, why don't saintly parents understand that? By the way, parents, you're welcome. I just saved you a lot on your cell phone bill. No, don't do that to me. Pastor, you really can't be serious. You say, you didn't find that in 1 Samuel. No, I did not find it in 1 Samuel. You're 100% right. What I do find in Samuel is that she weaned him. The word weaned certainly means feeding him, but the word weaned has a a bigger sense. She prepared him to be able to go off into life and be successful. And if your kid can't make rational, good decisions, why on earth would you hand to them, him or her, a portal to hell itself? And no one's ever been able to come back to me and say, well, this is the reason. Okay. If you can give me a good reason why the safety, sanctity, and survivability in many cases of your kids meets that description and overcomes my argument, go for it. The other thing that we had to decide many times in our house is the actionable steps that measure learned obedience is, can that person be my friend? Pastor, wait, you're actually talking about some of my kids or our kids. And the answer is we always tell our boys, your friends should lead you more into a, a deeper into a relationship with Jesus Christ and not take you away from it. Bruh, I can't believe you're doing that, dude. We don't have any girls in our house, so I don't know how the girls of our church talk, but I know that most of the teenage, well, bruh, what's up, dude? I mean, it's like broken, short, abbreviated words that I think resemble English. I hope you understand I am being somewhat lighthearted, but I'm trying to speak to a serious issue. These are matters of preparedness. Parents must do their part in raising consecrated kids. It's on you. By preparing them and praying for them. Now, we're going to skip chapter 2 this morning. In chapter 2, Hannah prays a wonderful prayer of relief from her adversary, Panina. We also read in the latter half of that chapter, God speaking to Eli, the prophet, priest, and judge whom Samuel is going to replace as to why his place and position is going to be removed. Eli is a failed parent. We come back to Samuel then in chapter 3 to find that obedience and a longing for consecration comes secondly with pastoral position. You could also say pastoral placement. You could say spiritual authority. Elkanah and Hannah were faithful worshipers of God. We might call them good church members in the New Testament. Of course, this is an Old Testament passage, so the church is not found. But mom and dad clearly loved God and were committed to teaching the love of God to their children. Elkanah made sure that Panina and her sons and daughters were able to offer their portions to the Lord for his worthiness in their life. That is worship, his worth. To Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. So Samuel, through his weaning years and into his ministry life, knew that dad and mom thought God was pretty important. Thus, when mom and dad chose to worship, when they chose to come before God, the place of their worship and the pattern of their worship meant a lot to him. It was informative. By the way, choosing a good church 
that endorses and enhances what you are teaching your children at home is essential. The same is true in educating your children day by day. Why do we select choices that tear down our values and treat them as dirt? Why do we do that when there are other options, one might say? Eli, however, becomes a mentor. He becomes a teacher. He becomes a guide and even a guard briefly for Samuel's life. He is not more important than Samuel's parents, but he does become an authority in Samuel's life. And by the way, it is good to teach your children that there are authorities in your life outside of you, governmental authority and church authority. Those are both scriptural principles that if we wanted to, we could teach hours on this morning. Now, I must add, far too many pastors think they run people's homes. I do not run your home. I run one home in this church. That's my own. The pastor's role is to give you a heavenly perspective on the way that you should be walking with God. Everything I've said this morning is just from that. From my position as pastor, I'm giving to you godly counsel that you ought to follow or that you ought to at least consider. Now, Eli is, of course, an imperfect picture He's a long-lived prophet. He dies at the age of 98 in chapter 4. He's a long-lived prophet, priest, and judge, and has not been the best parental role model. But it does not discount the instrumental role that he played in the position of priest or pastor in the formation of Samuel's obedient life. Eli, in the role of pastor, shows us, letter A, that the pastor helps with direction. 1 Samuel 3 and verse 8, the Bible says, And the Lord called Samuel again. Of course, we know the story. Samuel was being called by God. He and Eli are likely sleeping there near the Holy of Holies, and they are going to keep the menorah lit. They're going to keep that candle lit in the holy that leads into the holiest of holies. And so they would be sleeping in tents or sleeping in a little booth that would be near to where that was. And so God speaks to him, and Samuel goes to Eli. And God speaks to him, and Samuel goes to Eli. And God speaks to him a third time, and this is where it enters. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for thou didst call me. I know it's you, man. Notice what the end of verse number 8, if you have your Bibles open there, it says. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. In other words, he is ready now to give direction to Samuel in his life. Friends, the role of an under-shepherd is to direct the sheep back to the chief shepherd. That is my job. I am to feed and have oversight. That's the only two descriptions a pastor is given. I'm to point you back to the chief shepherd. My role as a pastor is to direct your lives and ultimately the lives of your kids to a deeper, more meaningful, and purposeful life with God. Eli was the priest who was in charge of leading Israel's worship. May I say to parents that if you do not teach your kids respect for you, respect for your family members, and if you do not teach your kids respect for spiritual authority in their lives, and you do not teach your kids respect for governmental authorities in your life, then you will have a very hard time getting them to go in any direction in life. 
In other words, if you tear down the pastor, if you tear down the church, if you make it as meaningless or not important, and notice I'm not saying Kyle, I'm saying the position of the pastor. If you don't think it's important, if you think you're more important than called positions of authority in your life, you are setting your kids up for failure. 100% you're setting them up for failure. Samuel was taught that God's man was there to help him walk with God. If you find yourself in a place where you cannot respect God's called man, or in a place where you, where you find that that called man is actively doing harm to you or your family, then leave. Go put yourself under another spiritual authority. But you cannot live anarchically. You cannot live as an anarchist in this world. It's not how God's designed our homes. And our children watch that. But if the man of God is showing you the direction that God is leading, then you should listen. Eli perceived that God was calling Samuel. He helped Samuel find God's leading and calling in his own life. The second thing a pastor in his position does is he hones our discernment. Do you know why I don't get up here every Sunday and just tell you stories? I mean, friend, I got lots of stories. I've lived a fun life. Do you know why I don't get up here and just wax eloquent about some Minutia part of my old life. Well, there was a time back when I was a teenager that I did this. And I'm going to talk for 15 minutes about that time. And I'm going to read you a little verse and I'm going to send you on the way, patting you on the back. Do you know why I don't do that? My life doesn't help you. A pastor's job is to bring you and your family under the authority of the Word of God and hone or train within you how you can make the right decisions from this book. That's my job. That's my responsibility. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3, we find this in Eli. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth so. Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. Friends, your pastor should hone and train your discernment in three ways. First, for godly counsel. Your pastor should be able to tell you what the Bible says. If you ever find yourself in a church and the pastor doesn't know how to take the Bible and help you, run. Run far, run fast. Don't look back. It may be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Your pastor should hone discernment in your life with godly counsel. The second is about God's very character. Your pastor should be able to tell you who God is and what God is like and what it's like to be with God and to know Him. The third thing is good choices. Your pastor should be able to tell you what a right choice looks like. I often, when people come to me, cannot tell you which choice to make, but I can tell you from the truth of the Word of God which choices not to make. In other words, if you come with five choices, I can very easily say, you know what, number two and number five, don't do those. They're not found in the Word of God. In fact, they're against Scripture. But one, three, and four, you make the choice because they're all good and biblical. Now, with good discernment, I might sit and ask more questions so that you can make a right choice, but I can't make it for you. All I can do is teach you how to make decisions. 
This is the heart of consecration and obedience, putting ourselves under spiritual authority. Obedience is following God's direction in a way of true biblical discernment. That is a key role for the church to help supplement the lives of Christian homes. That is my responsibility. The path to obedience to God in the life of a child or in any child of God begins with parental principles, with pastoral position, but finally, I needed another P, so you're welcome, the progeny's performance. Just in case you have a puzzle this week that you need a big letter P, progeny just means the generation or the offspring. We would get the word progenitor from that. And so the idea is the progeny, the kid himself, you as an individual, yourself. What does Proverbs 20 say about the child? It says this in verse 11, Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure, whether it be right. Samuel had to be the one who wanted to obey. No amount of the principles that mom and dad gave, no amount of the authority and position of a pastor in their life, God's call on Samuel was not an easy one, by the way, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 11 through 20. He was being called to lead Israel and replace Eli, the guy who had just given him good help and good training. God gives Samuel a specific message with a specific mandate. In this calling, we find Samuel has to make letter A, careful choices. Careful choices. Beginning in verse 11, the Bible says in, the Lord, in chapter 3, The Lord said unto Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of everyone that heareth shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice. By the way, when he later says obedience is better than sacrifice, this is also emanating in his mind. It is there he understands it. And Samuel lay into the morning and opened that doors of the house of the Lord. Can you imagine what he lay like for the rest of that night? Oh my goodness. This is bad news. I got to go tell that old fellow that I appreciate and that has trained me. I got to go tell him that he's being replaced. By the way, Samuel has no idea at this point what God has told Eli in chapter 2. He just know what, knows what God told him in that moment. The Bible says, And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. I would be too. Sometimes it's very hard to obey. Sometimes it's hard to make the choice to obey. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he answered, Here am I. And he said, What is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? Um... It was about where we were placing the stuff outside. You know, we just rearranged the courtyard a little bit. Well, he didn't lie. He was obedient. Remember, that's our word. Eli says, I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. And Samuel told him every wit. That's a great Bible word. Every part of it, every wit, and hid nothing from him. Obedience to God means making careful, often very difficult choices. 
Yet that is what obedience means. Choosing to act in a right way. Choosing to know God's word and do it, even if it is difficult. That's what obedience is. And if you have a longing to consecration, if you want to be different than this old world, then you're going to choose the difficulties of obedience. Eli was still the priest, and he directly asked Samuel the message. Eli's own disobedience is shown in this situation. Eli knows from chapter 2 that God has declared his ministry both rejected and his family ruined. Interestingly, Samuel doesn't know that. The hard truth that Samuel was told, coupled to the difficult task of relaying all that God has said, was the test of Samuel's obedience. Eli's like a grandfather to him. It isn't that Samuel wants to tell Eli this truth. It's that he must. In other words, he's not like, hey, let me tell you what, old man. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on in your life. No, Samuel is struggling with obedience, but he knows what is right, and he chooses it. If Samuel is to be a truth teller, that's what a prophet is, then he must be obedient as a messenger. So I put in your outlines, obedience is not always easy, but it is right. It leads us to our final thought, confidence in challenges. When I have chosen to do right very carefully, I can gain confidence in challenge after challenge. Now, we're going to expand upon this in the next coming sermons on the life of Samuel. Simply put here in verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his, or God's words, fall to the ground. That is obedience. That is one who has a desire to be holy, a desire to be like God. Samuel's faced with the challenge of obeying God with confidence. He was sure that if God said it, then he would do it. And he does that for the rest of his life. For Samuel, obedience was better than sacrifice. It's not just a line that God gave him to say to Saul. It's a belief that he had at the core of his being. By the way, parents, having your kids make obedient choices and requiring them to do that will help them down the road when more difficult and more difficult and more difficult challenges come their way. In closing this morning, obedience brings blessings. Samuel's life was blessed because he chose to obey God. God calls him to lead Israel to victory in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 over the Philistines. And Samuel ultimately chooses both Saul and David as kings over Israel. Yet we will find in our final message on him in a couple weeks that Samuel, even in his obedience, struggled with consistency. In other words, he's human. That's not good for his boys, but at least it's good for us to note that we're not going to be perfect, but we ought to be pursuing this principle of obedience. Here in our message today, we have found a young boy consecrated, separated in holiness to obey God and serve him. Parents, I ask this question in closing. Are you raising your kids to be obedient to God? I mean, willfully, purposefully obedient, not dragged into church and cleaned up for the preacher to see that they are good little boys and girls. I'm glad to see that. But that doesn't help your kid if you're just faking it and never making it. Friends, our country needs Christian homes who are obeying God honestly and openly before the eyes of fallen man. I ask myself in the second point, 
I ask our staff and our deacons, even our laymen who serve in leadership, in our position, are we helping homes with direction and discernment and how they should obey God? That's the purpose of the church. And to all of us, young and old, but especially those, I might say, to those in their early 30s or younger, are we making careful choices to obey God while confidently meeting the next challenge to obey and the next challenge to obey and the next challenge to obey? Now, Neil's in here, so I've got to be careful bragging on him. This is how I closed the first service. And he had itching ears out in the lobby. He's doing it right now. Years ago, after teaching in the Sunday school lesson, it was a wonderful lesson, Neil came to me with his Bible, and he said, You know, Pastor, he held up his Bible, just like this. He said, this whole book could be summed up in one word. What is that word, Neil? Obedience. Obedience. I've often thought about how very true that statement is. Now, some of you are wishing instead of taking 50 minutes as I did this morning, I would have taken five and just given you Neil's message. But it's true. What God desires is obedience, not sacrifice. And you have to have a longing desire to be like Him, to truly obey. Father, help us as we...